0: Before I begin the, or pick up the theme of that I'd like to reflect on this evening, I'd just like to mention and request that uh, it would be good if everyone could come to the instructions. We sometimes notice one or two haven't made it, and occasionally there might be some emergency circumstance which uh, requires that to be so, and of course that's fine. But apart from that, it's actually really important that you come along at that time and tomorrow morning it's even more important and if you come along you'll find out why <laughs> and I know that most of you have been coming and it's fine and if am sure there's been reasons why if anyone wasn't able to be there but uh, nonetheless we'll tell you a little more tomorrow the day will be a little different than today Every day is a little different, isn't it? So I haven't told you much. I'd like to offer some reflections on a theme that uh, feels, for me, very central to the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of of what it means to embody the awakened heart, and the the theme that. Uh, that I'd like to speak to is what it means to understand, to know, to live in the truth of the end of separation. We have and we can notice one of the fundamental human tendencies is to to separate, to make distinctions, to make boundaries. One of the remarkable benefits of our conceiving minds and our intellectual capacity is what we call discernment and It has many useful functions but we also have the the capacity and the tendency to draw what seem to be or create in fact what seem or appear to be very absolute distinctions, divisions, boundaries and what we could call separations. And this, this tendency to separate in many ways could be understood as very much the basis of the suffering that we experience that's fundamentally rooted in a disconnection from life. And the disconnection is founded in a in a perception, in a separation that we are well served to reflect upon, to look at, to examine, we could say, and to understand the heart of wisdom, the, the essence of the Buddha's teaching, the Dharma, is to embody the awakened heart that sees through the appearance of separation. And uh, I'm trying to polish my glasses, which I thought oh, I'll wear glasses this time so I can actually see the screen properly. One of the lenses has just fallen out, so I'm just going to try and put it back. I should probably get a, a real pair of glasses rather than cheap magnifiers, but uh, it does happen now and then, these things. You've probably noticed them elsewhere in your life. And maybe it's going to go back in, and maybe it's not. Interesting. Well, this might be an interesting solution to the funny thing that when I wear a pair of glass, I don't like to because... Then I actually can't see everybody in the room that well, so maybe my glasses are offering me a solution. <laughs> I'll see how that works. It's, unfortunately, I'm not sure if it's going to, but let's see. Hmm, that's a really interesting. Perce- <laughs> that's a really interesting um, perception. I think I'll work just a little longer on the glasses, um, and see. They they probably will go back together. Um, you know, I think it might just have done it, but thank you for the offers. Okay, thank you, Faith. I'll see if these fall apart again. I might retrieve that pair. Thank you, Leela. Um, I think we've survived that particular separation. <laughs> uh, so to see through... <laughs> Essentially, I'm seeing through the appearance of separation. Um I didn't quite have it, uh, that particular version in mind. but uh, One of the things I think that we notice that stands out as our practice deepens, as we settle more fully, more wholeheartedly into this, this process, this journey, this unfolding of, of what takes place in a retreat such as this for us, is that there's a a way in which the sense of boundaries, of edges, of a kind of hard division and distinction starts to soften, starts to blur, perhaps even at times we feel it beginning to dissolve, to no longer be tangible, perceptible or solid to our our senses and to our our perception. The the breath, as we feel it more deeply, as we start to track and follow, that movement, that flow, that... uh, vibration the very sensation starts to become something rather than just the breath we realize it's breathing and the very breathing actually starts to become something fluid and we can't quite say is it just this here in this part of my body well perhaps it's equally taking place in the whole of my body and maybe it's not just taking place in my body because in fact it's taking place around my body and we may or may not think in these terms. We don't need to think in these terms. But we might just start to have this sense of, of a kind of a softening, a kind of a dissolving of what's solid. I shouldn't do this, should I? I should leave well enough alone. But these glasses are really smeary and dirty. So in order to help me able to be able to actually see through them, I'm going to try once more. When we pay attention to our body, as we become really more embodied, as we're really more fully in the experience, and we're not relating to our body as an image or an idea, and we notice, so what does it feel like down there where the thing that I call my butt or my bottom or my behind, where it meets the cushion or the chair or the mat? We say it regularly, we feel where your bottom rests on the seat or the cushion. We tend to think, yeah, there's my bottom resting on the cushion. But if you get your attention right down there and get intimate with it, if you're not shy about that, and I encourage you not to be, to let yourself feel, can you feel that as if there's some place where your bottom ends and the cushion or the seat begins? Is there really such an experience or a place? Or isn't it there's this feeling of firmness that's revealed? Or maybe it's softness revealed by the two, in a sense, realms of experience that we call bottom and that we call seat. They come together and they reveal a firmness, but it's not bottom or seat, it's just this. It's just this. And that that sense that we get from that when we feel something more soft, the body as a, as a field of vibration, rather than a bunch of different bits, arms and legs and organs and things, or have we relate to it, actually from the inside we see it's this field of vibration. And if we take our attention to the periphery, to the edges of that field, it doesn't just suddenly stop and become something else. Have you noticed this? It actually just sort of slowly flows, dissolves, merges and blends into a field of experience that extends beyond this body. And there isn't a place when we feel from the inside where body stops and not body begins. In fact, of course, our body is full of little holes. And through those little holes, there is a movement and a passage. It's the pores of the skin, a movement and a passage of of matter, of material, we could say, that doesn't recognize a, a sort of a fixed boundary at all. And fortunately for us, it doesn't. As we look closely at our experience, at one level we start to see that all the things that seem solid, like there's events and phenomena happening, and they seem quite solid, and maybe they seem like they stay in a certain way for quite a while. But as we pay attention to them, we see that they're... They're changing, they're flickering, and actually the events of our life reveal themselves as process that don't have beginnings or endings, that are woven into everything that came before and equally are part of the fabric out of which everything that comes after is formed, is woven. This heart, mind, body, we've talked about this in different ways. They're so intimate with each other. They inform each other. They condition or shape each other profoundly. And one of the interesting things we begin to notice in practice is that we can't necessarily make our mind be different than it is. We can't tell the mind if the mind is sort of dozy or fuzzy or dull. We can't say, mind, get bright and have it just do that. I don't know if you've tried. It doesn't really work. But what we can do with our mind is recognize, oh, it's kind of fuzzy. But if I make my body an expression of uprightness and engagement, that actually allows the mind to brighten. Somehow they feed into each other. They relate to each other. And we can see again and again if we're watching that this heart, mind, body, the way we talk about it is these different things. It's not. It's not just an idea that this is a unified phenomena. It's actually experience and experienceable. Experiencible. It's different than experiencing a bull. I don't know where that came from, but my mind seems to be doing silly things at the moment. And minds do that sometimes. And you kind of think, well, you know, there wasn't even actually a need for a really bad joke. But somehow you see it come. You think, oh my God, it's coming. It's going to happen. Oh my God, it's happening. Here it is. Excuse me. Does that happen to you ever in your life? You kind of almost see something coming, you think, hmm, I'm not sure if that's a good idea, but here it goes. And the sense that I made that up, certainly not. It just arises into the field. I mean, okay, I have some responsibility. I could have stopped it, probably. But somehow that isn't what happened. And this mind seems to arise. This body seems to arise. And of course we see they're affected by the history, by the conditions, by the the, the vast sweep of ancestry, as Leela was speaking about a couple of nights ago, that vast sweep of evolutionary development, and not just evolutionary, but cosmological unfoldment. And if we turn to look and see what this is that we call me sitting over here, you know, this body feels so intimate, so sensitive, so beautiful at times, so tender, At times also sometimes clunky or difficult or painful in its limitations or it's at times unwellness. (coughs) But if we really feel into it, you know, it's as an experience. It's not somehow that we are inside here and the world's out there we tend to think, oh, I'm sort of in here somewhere, don't we? It's a very strong identification we form with body. And psychologically it can be traced and understood as something that begins to take place in an early child, or in fact, fetal development. And yet there's this process of starting to see, oh, this body, is this really me? You know, am I in here somewhere? Because what it is, it's a hollow tube, you know. It's really just a very long, complicated tube. A lot of the tube is coiled up in here with some appendages on the outside, designed mostly to get things to put inside the tube and to prevent other things from putting this tube inside their tube. That's mostly what the functioning of these bits attach to the tube. Are. There's a couple of other tubes for making more tubes, yes. But this is it. This highly advanced, deeply, profoundly evolved organism. But it's basically hollow. And what's on the inside of it definitely doesn't feel like me. What's inside the tube? You know what that is. You were eating it earlier. You'll be getting rid of some of it in a little while. We don't talk about this so often. But that's what's on the inside. And then there's spaces and there's air that comes in, moves through and... the moisture that passes through, this perspiration, and other things. This human body is a profoundly permeable thing. Have you noticed? I remember encountering a piece of graffiti in my teenage years. I don't know why my mind goes here either, but it does. And it said something like, you know, when you smell, it was a place where there was some unpleasant smell. And it it said, You know when you smell things, it's little bits of it getting in your nose? And it's kind of, it's quite, ugh, I don't want to know that. But it's true, isn't it? When we smell something or we taste something, it's little bits of it getting in to our body. And the mind, in the same way, it's this field that receives experience. When we hear a sound, it gets in. You know, if you, if you listen and you're really present, you're not trying to figure out what the sound is or trying to do something with the fact that the sound should or shouldn't be happening, but we just hear the sound, we can't actually tell if the sound is happening out there somewhere or in here. It actually fills the space between the perceived, projected and constructed sense of out there, where it appears to have come from, and in here, where it appears to be being heard. But sometimes when we allow our attention to just open into the field of hearing, there's a sense of spaciousness, of vastness, that we start to access, which I think not uncommonly can also be felt as something profoundly reassuring. Because we're neither, in a way, inside it nor outside it. There's just this, space, and the thoughts that seem so intimately inside us. You know, thoughts, they feel so much to come, to be me, to be coming in here. And yet, where do they come from, these thoughts? Where do they arise from? Almost all the thoughts we ever had, we heard from someone else. Do you know how many original thoughts you're likely to have had today that you never heard from anyone else, that you never thought yourself before? I suspect very few. I don't know. Maybe you're sitting there having original thoughts all the time. But I know that that's what's not going on in my mind. And if I actually look, I can see, oh, actually, these thoughts came from somewhere else. I heard them somewhere else first. It's a rare and exciting moment when a completely new one happens. And what's interesting is this very thinking process by the way it relates in terms of concepts that discern and therefore distinguish and therefore appear to separate this from that, me from you, inside from outside, us from them in so many ways. Those thinking processes that appear to create a sense of separateness, we if we don't see the process whereby that creation of apparent separateness is taking place, we believe that the separation that we perceive and believe we are experiencing is absolutely actually real but it's not the experience of fear has this very strong sense of otherness in it the sense of the way we're organized and wired up to attempt to self-preserve One of the interesting things about fear is that all fear comes down in one way or another to attempt to protect against annihilation, whether physiological or psychological annihilation. In a sense, it's all about avoiding death. And fundamentally, it's bound to fail. Because we can't. Nobody does. Nothing does ultimately succeed in the endeavor to exist forever. And it's actually probably a good thing too. I mean, it'll be kind of crowded. But looking at the sense of how otherness, separate, di- separate separation, distance is created, we can see this process of fear, the sense of how when we find the reaction of aversion pushing away. The the pushing away is very much part of the process whereby we find ourselves cut off from, separate from. And actually, although we create some appearance, some feeling of safety in that, actually there's a there's a deep pain and distress in the in the heart of our being at the disconnect that's equally created in that pushing away. There's a beautiful passage from Roker where he speaks of our relationship to fear. He says we have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers we must try to love them. And if we could only arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. I was very deeply touched when I first heard this passage. Someone read it or recited it. I can't remember where it was, but for me the sense of the the dragons that might be transformed into princesses something very quickly shifted from the traditional image one has of the you know, the the killing the dragon to save the princess image that we have in our psyches in our in our mythology. And the sense that, in fact, that which is scary and threatening transforms through our courage and our love into that which we actually recognize as most precious, that we wish to protect. Something helpless which wants our love. And the movement of love is that which actually passes through the apparent or moves through, is unbound by the apparent separation, by the distance. The very nature of love is it that it is not bound by that. And yet, in our perception, in our conceiving of life, in our relating to the phenomenal world in the way that we tend to easily do, we create the sense of disconnect, as I said, in which it somehow allows or suggests that the movement of, the natural movement of love should be held back, that it's not to go beyond that which we regard as I, and mine, that which is identified with as of importance, of value, of significance to me. It's so painful to feel separate, to feel disconnected, to not trust in the profound connection without which our life could not exist for a moment and yet of course sometimes this is our experience and it's important in that to not somehow dismiss it or regard it as in itself a mistake but actually a place that's calling for our care and our attention those very places of disconnection where we feel separate where we feel unable to make contact with the, the tenderness and warmth of our life, the caring, the cherishing of our life. These are places we actually have to make room for. We have to learn to care for. We have to learn to meet and to feel, to become intimate with. Not all at once, but slowly and over time, to become intimate with. To not make them somehow apart from what we care about. And so we don't transform the experience of disconnection by somehow moving around it to the place of connection. We only transform it by being, having the courage and the tenderness of heart that it requires to enter into it, to know it fully from the inside, and in doing so understand that while we may indeed have that feeling, the truth is something different than that. Insofar as when we are open to being touched by and touching those places, we actually find they offer us a remarkable and profound opportunity for connection. And something in our hearts longs deeply for this. It's said that the much-loved teacher Buddha Dasa, who lived in Thailand in the twentieth century, was a, a great uh, reformer and um, a wonderful teacher of uh, of these practices. And he he once was asked, "How do you work with? How do you hold people who come to you with great amounts of emotional pain and distress?" And interesting, you know, to reflect that we had this the movement of these teachings into our culture came as a result of the people of our countries, and to a significant degree, North America, being in Southeast Asia, engaged in war. That's how they came to be there. Many of the people who subsequently came to encounter this, to bring it, but he, dasa. He responded, he said, I surround them with loving kindness. These people who come with a lot of emotional distress and pain, he says, I surround them with loving kindness and then I send them out into the nature, into the forest (coughs) and leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. There's something about the way the natural world can speak to us of this truth. There's something about the way that as human beings we've come to imagine that somehow the natural world is something we are not partaking of. When in fact we are only that, nothing but that, never anything other than that. So again, it's useful to examine our perception of separation, the way in which we experience the sense of boundaries, of difference. And I think we've talked about and reflected upon you know, just the very air that we breathe, the very existence that we sustain through breathing. A shared element of material that's released from the leaves of trees and grasses. and There's something kind of lovely at times, at least for me, to reflect on. Oh yeah, what I'm breathing in was inside the leaves of green things. How how sweet. Not so far away, some of them. But of course, some of what we're breathing in was within the lungs and the cells of our neighbours also. And sometimes we're a bit more like, hmm, not sure if I want to be breathing in what somebody else just breathed out. It's kind of like, hmm but i'm quite happy to breathe it in if a tree breathes it out i mean what's going on there what is it about our relationship to human life that leads to that kind of response there's a tenderness that starts to reveal and to emerge in us. I think a profound tenderness when we're really close, when we're so close to the experience that we don't separate ourselves from it even by the very idea of conceiving that it's happening, let alone conceiving it happening to me. It's just happening. And it's happening prior to the conceiving that describes it, that discerns it, that separates it that puts experience into boxes. And this very breathing process, we notice perhaps sometimes that it's not really quite like we're doing it it rather fortunately continues happening when we're completely unconscious, spaced out. So it's not happening willfully. And to some extent we might feel like, oh yes, well it's the autonomous, autonomous nervous system, autonomic nervous system, doing its thing, you know, functioning along. It's true. And yet sometimes if we really feel what's happening, it's hard to tell if we're actually breathing in or if the world around us, the whole universe, is simply just breathed out. And our body inflates as it breathes out. And as it breathes in, the air is just drawn out of our body into it. We might think it's happening the other way around, but I'm not so sure. That's just a way of talking about it. And we begin to sense someone mentioned about encountering a a small creature. And we sometimes do. And can feel just how our heart responds, you know, to the the mice that sometimes appear or the the bunny rabbits on the lawn. The cows in the field and we, we feel a sense of something in our heart touched deeply like in this most intimate part of our own experience we are affected by something that appears to be outside. But by the very fact it affects us, impacts us so deeply it's speaking to, it's pointing to the fact that it's not. It's not outside in the way we think of it. If we were separate from what we are surrounded by, we would not be affected by it. And we're completely and profoundly affected. That's what it means to be what we are, to be affected. And to be responding, to be affecting. We are affected and affecting. Constantly. Constantly. And we may even begin to sense as we feel that that this that is around us is not even just similar to us, but this this is us, that we are of this that is here. And not just living things, but that which is inanimate too, or so-called inanimate. The very material of life has a vibration, not different than the vibration we feel that tells us we're alive. Mary Oliver writes of this. She says in this poem entitled Some Things Say the Wise Ones. She says, Some things say the wise ones who know everything are not living. I say, You live your life your way and leave me alone. I have talked with the faint clouds in the sky when they were afraid of being left behind. I have said, Hurry, hurry, hurry. And they have said, thank you, we are hurrying. About cows and starfish and roses, there is no argument. They die after all. But water is a question. So many living things in it. But what is it itself, living or not? Oh, gleaming generosity, how can they write you out? As I think of this, I am sitting on the sand beside the harbour. I am holding in my hand small pieces of granite, pyrite, schist, each one just now so thoroughly asleep. And I love, I love Mary Oliver's poetry and there's this, this image, this sense of, and I, I tend to pick up stones. I have stones from all around the world in my house and in my garden, mostly small ones, occasionally larger ones. And there's something about just feeling this, the sensitivity of, this is life in one of its forms of being asleep. What might it mean to know that all of this that is around us is, is alive, just as we are? You know, we've t- talked on, I think Leela mentioned also about gravity, what a blessing it is, a couple of nights ago, I think that was. And, you know, for for me, it's not just fortune. I, I totally have that sense of how fortunate we are, but, but what is it actually saying? You know, the fundamental characteristics of of matter subatomic and um, sort of i don't know ordinary level matter I'm sure there's a proper word for that somewhere gravity is the the basic force that they recognize in the universe there's two forces gravity and the force that keeps it pulls um, subatomic particles together, the attraction between electrons and neutrons. These are the fundamental forces that seem to generate everything. And interestingly, gravity, what, you know what that says? It says that matter is attracted to other matter. The more matter there is, the more it wants to be close with it. That's what it is. The more of it there is, the more it wants to be close with it. And that's what it does at a subatomic level, likewise. It's actually this pull to come together. There's something of that that speaks perhaps of our hearts and our pull, our draw to be close, to be intimate, to know fully and deeply for ourselves in this place, in this location, the depth of our participation in all of this. That we call life, that we call existence, and so as we practice, we can start to notice the effect in the heart and the mind, as things become a little softer, more fluid, less sharp, and we might appreciate the sentiment and there's a poem here by. Liesel Mueller and she writes I'll tell you the title afterwards but it's speaking as if Monet was the author of this this, these words and you may know that the artwork of Monet I don't particularly know it myself but it's clearly referring to some well-known images of his of his work Anyway, she writes, and he says, Doctor, you say there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris and that what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I do not see to learn that the line I call the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before, I could not see the Rouen Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of light. And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space wisteria separate from the bridge it covers what can I say to convince you the houses of Parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames I will not return to a universe of objects that do not know each other as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent The world is flux and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly one to another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it, to paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones, our skin, our clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to embrace this world blue vapour without end. The poem is entitled Monet Refuses the Operation. If we look at the nature of this human journey of our lives, it seems to me that we come in with a natural and remarkable capacity for love, for care, for a willingness and a, and a need for connection. There's an inherent caring, an inherent benevolence, I would say, in what it is to be a human being. And yet the expression of that is limited by the way in which we tend often unconsciously, habitually and compulsively to identify with a partial and a limited sense of what is here, of what is real, of what is true. The sense of self, of me, of I, of what is mine, of what I feel close to, myself, my family, my community, my identity groups, whatever they might be, whether social class, ethnic group, national, religious, even special identity. I'm human being and I'm not so interested in those other kinds of beings. Or I'm a mammal and I'm not so interested in the scaly ones or the cold-blooded ones. if we start to see and sense and feel deeply the way this process constructs that identity, we realize that in fact the way in which the love, the natural caring that is the expression of of this heart and mind, the profound expression of this heart and mind, that the, the closing of the heart is born of a process of somehow pulling back from the participation in something unbounded that perhaps we can't quite handle to begin with. We don't know how to handle because it's more, it seems, than we can handle. And that's understandable and natural. And yet, as we start to soften the The sense of identity, the sense of affirming our separateness based on taking this location as somehow defining me apart from, separate from, different than what is around me. There's a There's a way in which the boundedness, the limitedness, the constriction of that movement of love, of the heart, starts to open up, starts to open out. It's so painful to identify with just a fragment of what we are. To hold ourselves to be so much less than what this is that we are. and inevitably end up in opposition to or conflict with that which we endeavor to put or hold outside of ourselves. When we don't leave anything out, when we don't constrict our heart by identifying as being this and not that there is a way in which the sense of boundaries begin to dissolve and in that the natural love of the heart is something boundless it's no longer constrained The natural loving capacity we come in with needs the support of wisdom in order to know and to manifest its full expression and potential. So we talk about this practice as a wisdom tradition not because it isn't equally concerned with love but because it's wisdom, it's seeing what is true that releases the constriction and the limitation on that love, that in its flowing, in its movement, in its expression is actually the fulfillment, the healing and the the depth of of meaning and of value and of satisfaction, fulfillment that we long for, that we long for so deeply. To make no distinction between this and that, which doesn't mean we can't still function in the ordinary world to know, of course, that yes, when I'm getting up, it's probably best if I try and dress this body and leave other bodies to, you know, take care of themselves. In a certain way, that's entirely fine. Of course, we need to do that. But not to imagine that that says anything ultimate about what we are. This embodied openness allows the very nature of life, which is love, equally as it is wakefulness. It allows this to be known directly. We can't conceive it, we don't get it with our thinking heads, it doesn't make sense because that organ is not designed for this function it's the wholeness of the being that resonates in the knowing of what can be understood can be realized can be embodied in this journey of awakening And this is something sacred, this is something blessed, this is something uplifted, to know this, to be this. This that is ungraspable cannot be held, but equally cannot be lost. So we have this opportunity, this life, to awaken, to know and to live the deepest truth that can be known, that can be lived. Each of us is just that, is just this. The beloved Indian saint and teacher in the 20th century, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. He said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing, love tells me I am everything. Between, between these two, my life flows. May we all come to know in the very depths of our hearts and our lives that we are inextricably a part of all that is to be no thing and yet. All things embodying the awakened heart of life for our own well being and for the welfare of all beings, of all that lives, of all. That is. Thank you for listening.